You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Romans chapter 14. The danger of criticism. Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't, and those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord both of the living and of the dead. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scriptures say, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me, and every tongue will confess and give praise to God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person, it is wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died then you will not be criticized for doing something you believe is good. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God, and others will approve of you too. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you are doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. A couple of weeks ago, I had my, the uh, anniversary of my conversion. It's July 14th. 
and um, I was converted in the year 2000. So I'm in this strange space now where half of my life is like BC and half of it is post-conversion. And, um, and so I was thinking about the, every year as that comes around, I think about the circumstances around which I was saved and they were tumultuous to say the least. I don't know, you might have heard me talk about this, but there's just a series of events that left me on my knees finally able to really, in spite of myself and my pride, humble myself before God and accept his free offer of salvation. It was, um, it, it was the, the crucible event of my life. And um, the, the, the details around it that I, that I haven't really gone into very often were that, um, that, humanly speaking, it never should have happened in the first place. That is, when I, um, when I went over to America... Uh, as a 19-year-old, fresh out of, out of high school, um, deferred university, went to the US. I wanted to work with poor kids. I wanted to work with disadvantaged kids. I, I, have, I had and do have this uh, fairly strong sense of justice and, and wanting to help those less fortunate than myself. I, I heard about these kids who lived in Pittsburgh, in Pennsylvania, uh, an old mining town, which used to be really wealthy and now is destitute. Right? The, the iron ore has run out and so they're left with nothing. And the, the, the majority of kids in these inner city areas are African-American and dirt poor. Uh, none of them have dads. They're either dead or in jail. All of them carry weapons. Most of their mums are on drugs. Right? It's just it's a terrible situation. So I, I, my heart went out to those kids. I had a sense of wanting to, to do good things for them. I didn't have any sense that this was something that Jesus wanted me to do. I'd grown up in the church, but I wasn't walking with Jesus, and therefore I didn't know what he wanted me to do and didn't really care about what he wanted me to do. At the time, in year 2000, there was this great sense in Australian culture that we were feeling, we were feeling bombarded by American culture, and we were worried about it. Like, kids were starting to use American catchphrases those, those youths, right, they were, they were picking up these Americanisms and it threatened us. We didn't want to go down that path. What I found when I went to America was a culture so different than ours that it was, that it was shocking. I was, like, shocked. Um, not just in terms of the national differences between national culture, but also ch- just church culture. Like, I knew church culture well. I went to church every week um, all through my life growing up, and I got what I thought was universal church culture and then found out going overseas that there was nothing universal about it, that things that I took for granted that were part of being a Christian here were completely different over there. And so all of this came together and just smashed together in a big collision of cultures and the long and the short of it is that I got fired immediately from this church, uh, from this um, camp. Um, The reason I did was because it was run by conservative Salvation Army Christians. Um, so in the Salvation Army, uh, you as a, like a 15, 14-year-old, you sign something saying, I will never drink. Um, if you want to be married, you can only be married to another Salvation Army officer, right? It's, it's quite rigid in that respect, hence the army designation, right? They really see it as a, like a military thing. Um, and what happened to me was I landed in uh, Pit- at Pittsburgh Airport, and I was waiting for the guy from camp to come pick me up, and so I did what I would do at any other point in my life, morning or night, and that was I went to the bar, uh, and I ordered a couple of beers. The guy told me, because I looked like I was about 11, he told me that I couldn't get any beer because you had to be 21, 
Um, and so somehow I convinced him to serve me anyway. I, I don't know. I, and convinced him to put the AFL football on, which we had to discuss what that meant. And, um, but anyway, so I was watching AFL football, drinking beers, and then the guy came to pick me up and he was like, there's, some, there's something wrong here. You can't be the one I'm picking up. And then I didn't catch on. So we stepped out to get to his car and I was like, oh, dude, just, just a sec. I just need to have a, a couple of smokes. And so I chain smoked about three cigarettes, and I showed him, like, all the cartons of cigarettes that I got really cheap, duty-free, right? And then, um, then we were in the car, we were making our way out of the airport, and this was the clincher. Those two things were enough. But the clincher was, I, I saw a big SUV, which these days, right, there are big SUVs everywhere. Back then, this was like a very American thing that I wasn't familiar with. It was enormous, and chrome wheels, and, and, I, and I said, whoa, what the hell is that? And that was it, because for him and his culture, drinking was, was certainly something that a Christian would never do. Smoking was like next level. You, smoking is, you might as well be in hell. That's where people smoke, right? And, and then saying hell, damn, these kinds of words, which I used frequently, were, were just like some other four-letter words that we, we would view in our culture as being inappropriate. They were the same for, for him. And so I... <laughs> I, I, I completely missed all of this, missed his consternation and, 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 and disgust until they got me into the office and said, this isn't going to work, right? Like, we, you, are n- you are not the kind of person we want working here. And they were well within their rights. They had a certain kind of person in mind that they wanted. Like, first of all, a Christian would be a start. Um, but certainly not anyone who was going to lead people away from what they perceived as the path of following Jesus. And so we had this big collision. We both sensed between the two of us that God was actually doing something in me in that place. It's a very profound understanding. Like, uh, this is terrible in every way, but I think God might be doing something. So they put a hold on my deportation um, and, and we sort of we sort of played it out and it turns out that God was doing something. He did, in fact, save me despite myself and my circumstances. But it was a close-run thing. And, and the point is this. These issues, right, these, these, these non-ethical secondary issues that are present in every Christian community have the capability and potential to divide us, to separate us, right? We'll stay here, we'll send you off to California to the Jewish camp. That's, that, that was the plan, right? We need, we need, on the basis of these issues, we need to divide ourselves. And Paul knows that really well, and so that's why he wrote chapter 14 of the book of Romans. He knows in his church in Rome that there are a bunch of different people, different backgrounds, different cultures, just like between me and those guys, right? You've got Jews who have become Christians. You've got pagans who have become Christians. You've got people from all different walks of life and cultures. In Rome, very multicultural society, right? So you've got all this big melting pot, and the differences that exist between people, even the peripheral ones, have the ability, the potential to cause great division, and Paul doesn't want to see that. And so he says to the Christians in Rome, check it out with me, verse 1, he says... Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. So in that situation in Pennsylvania at that time, in that church, in that Christian community, I'm a weaker 
Christian, right? I'm, I'm, the, I'm, I'm the one whose faith is weak. I don't, I don't understand everything that goes with following Jesus. I don't understand really what it is to be a disciple. Those guys there were mature believers. They were really on fire, really committed. And so what Paul says to them, and, I, and, and in this case they took the advice, is, is that these weaker Christians, these new Christians, these, these people who don't get it yet, they need to be accepted, not rejected. People for whom these peripheral issues are stumbling blocks, are um, are holding them back from maturity and faith, these people need to be accepted. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Don't let these disputable, tertiary, insignificant things become gospel things, become things that can divide us. Now, Paul is as strong as anyone else when it comes to the big issues. He's not saying, you know, some of you believe that committing adultery is okay, some of you don't, just get over it. He's not saying that. That is not a disputable matter. But but there are a whole lot of things that are. And so he says, don't get bogged down in that. And he gives an example in in verse 2, all right? This is a contextualized example for him and for that church. He says, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Right now within me, uh, there's all this self-discipline, like I just, I have to do my best not to make any vegetarian jokes, because he's just, he is totally teed it up for me, guys. Can you, can you at least give me, the one whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. For the last month, I've eaten nothing but meat. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, no fruit, no vegetables, no plant matter of any kind except coffee beans. That's what I've had them. Meat otherwise, right? For a month. And um, I don't know, some of you are thinking, I can see the results. It's um, just looking a lot more like Jesus in every way. You've got to be careful of preachers who take one verse and try and make a, uh, a, a doctrine out of it. We should all just eat meat, because that's what he said, right? And, and this happens when preachers um, take verses out of context. It happens all of the time. So what you want to ask a preacher whenever he makes any kind of statement is you want to say, says who? Like, if it's just you, I don't care. You're just a dude. Right? Says who? And he should be able to say, it says it here in the scriptures, and here's the context of the passage so that we can understand what Paul is saying. Well, the context of the passage is very easy to understand. Paul talks about it a lot in his letters. He's got a church where there are a bunch of people from different religious backgrounds. Remember, first century, these letters are very early in the piece. First generation of Christians. Almost everyone in the church comes from a pagan background or a Jewish background. And so, he knows that for, certainly for pagans, they're used to sacrificing meat to idols, right? Taking animals, sacrificing them to the sun god or whatever. And then that meat would be sold in markets and you would buy the meat that's been sacrificed to whoever. Take it home and eat it and it's all good. It's part of your worship. And so these guys now have become Christians and suddenly this is a bit of an issue of conscience, right? Like, is it okay to eat the meat that's been sacrificed to the God that I don't believe in anymore? Is that all right? Like, and, so, and people did, went different ways. Some people were like, yeah, it's fine, no probs. Other people were like, no, I, I can't eat that meat. I, like, this is, 
I don't believe in those gods anymore. I've left them behind, right? I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, not even to the meat sacrificed to idols. And so Paul addresses this in a few different ways. He says it here that, yes, there are some people who will eat meat. There are others whose faith is weak. That is, they don't yet understand that it's okay to eat this meat, that it's, 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 it's not going to compromise them in some way. Saying that their faith is weak is not a criticism or a pejorative designation. It's just, this is just a fact. They're struggling with this. It's part of their conscience, right? And he says, that's okay. They're going to be these people in your church. You need to be able to accept them. Why do we accept them? Because God has accepted them. They're believers. He didn't reject them because they felt weird about meat. He addresses this specifically in 1 Corinthians 8. So he says... This. Some people are still so accustomed to idols, right? They're new Christians, just converted, still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, or their faith is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So he says to the mature Christians, accept these weaker brothers and sisters and don't make it difficult for them. You might think, well, yeah, I'm a mature Christian. I can eat whatever I want. Who cares? Well, don't let that right you have be a stumbling block to people who are struggling with it. we have got to flesh this out a little bit more because this is actually not as clear-cut as it seems, and the working it out in our community with our own set of issues and debatable things is quite difficult, requires quite a bit of thought and navigation. So uh, let's just work through this and see if we can come away with some kind of ethic of, of being able to relate to one another in unity without causing anybody to stumble. Two errors that Paul just talked about that he wants us to avoid, all right? There's, there are like two reefs that we need to avoid as we sail together in this thing called church, right? Two, two errors he wants us to avoid. First one, he wants us to avoid judging the weaker brother. Second thing he wants us to avoid is forcing that brother or sister to act against their conscience, right? Don't judge, don't force. First of all, don't judge the weaker brother or sister. Why? Because God's accepted them, so why shouldn't we? Like, like God who knows them perfectly, God who knows every crinkle of their character, every sin, every stupid superstitious thing that they've brought in from whatever baggage they've got from their family, right? He has accepted them. He didn't reject them on that basis, so neither should we. We don't exclude people because they don't have the same knowledge that we do or the same kind of background as we do. So he says, this is in verse 3 to 4. Read it with me. He says, The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? 
To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. And he goes on in verse 13, Therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Right? So don't judge them. God has accepted them. And don't, in your behavior towards them, make them stumble. Don't put anything in front of them. Don't hold them back from pursuing their Lord. As they pursue Him, He will reveal things to them. They will grow in knowledge and understanding. This is very, very important for a church to know, a church that's on mission, right? A church that wants to see people come to faith. Now, I would love, and my expectation is, that we will see more and more and more people come to faith as we faithfully communicate the good news of Jesus, right? And as you faithfully communicate it to your friends and neighbours and colleagues, we'll see more and more people come to faith. Now, here's the problem with churches where people come to faith. They're messy places. If, if you have a multicultural, multi-generational church where there are Christians and new Christians, it's messy. It's irritating. Like these new Christians, they don't know all our rules yet, Right? They don't know how to do things the way that we do them. And so it's irritating. And Paul says, yeah, I know. Just accept them. Be gentle with them. Why? God accepted you. So don't judge them. Don't put a stumbling block in front of them. How might we put a stumbling block in front of these brothers and sisters? We can put a massive stumbling block in front of them to the, to the point where he says we can destroy them by forcing them to act against their conscience on these disputable matters. By saying, well, now you're, you're part of a church where you, you went to that, that church where they don't know anything. Now you're part of our church. You need to do things the way we do them. And if we do that to the extent that we force them against their conscience to do anything, then Paul says we destroy them. Now, I don't, want, I don't know about you. I think I do know about you. I don't think anyone in this church wants to put any kind of stumbling block in front of anyone who's trying to follow Jesus. So he says, verse 14 to 15, I am convinced, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. And verse 22 to 23, whatever you believe about these things, these issues, these, these non-gospel issues, whatever you believe about them, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. What he's saying is, if you go against your conscience and eat that thing, or drink that thing, or do that thing, then you're not doing it by faith. 
And everything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. When you go against, act against your conscience, you are, in fact, sinning. So let's take, let's take an example that's a little bit more contemporary than pagan meat, right? Although that might that whole principle might apply to halal meat, if you you know need to deal with that in today's culture, um, something a little bit more appropriate, probably or applicable, is the issue of drinking alcohol. Right. So for those people that I uh, that I worked with in the United States, um, being a Christian necessarily meant that you don't drink. That's what being a Christian is, in part. Like it, being a Christian is, yep, I don't com- don't commit adultery, um, I don't defraud the government, and I don't drink. For other people, they feel liberated from that law and able to enjoy alcohol to the glory of God, to give thanks for it as a gift. So here's here's let's just workshop this a little bit. Here's what I, I believe, and I've, I feel like I've sort of gone, not the gamut of views in that sense, but in terms of practice. So, like, before I became a Christian and afterwards, I, like, alcohol was a big part of my life. Um, I, in my garage, the cars were no longer able to park in there because I was brewing vats of beer, and I had it on tap, and I had, free, like, I just, the whole setup, it was amazing. And, um, and... These days, I probably have six beers a year, right? So I, I, I feel like I've gone, and, and my change in practice hasn't been based on anything I believe that God is saying directly to me, but rather a, a, a journey of the conscience, which is exactly what he's talking about. Um, so he, here's how, how, how I want to break it down, and we can chat about this if you want. Fact number one, you can't make a biblical argument that all Christians should abstain from alcohol. Uh, You can make an argument that we shouldn't drink. You can't make it a biblical argument, all right? So you you, you need to understand that if you're making an argument that all Christians should never have a drop of wine, then you need to make it on the basis of culture or tradition. You won't make a biblical one. People try, and they get into all kinds of trouble trying to make the Bible say what it doesn't say. So fact number one, you can't make a biblical argument that all Christians should abstain from alcohol. Fact number two, if you think that drinking alcohol is a sin, then for you, it is a sin. Now, I, I struggle with this, right? Because that's, that's like my critique of postmodern culture. Well, your truth is your truth. That's rubbish, right? Truth is absolute. You can't just make things suit yourself. But actually, that's exactly what Paul says in this passage, right? He says, I'm convinced, verse 14, fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, right? No doubt that nothing is unclean in itself. No food or drink is off the table. There's nothing unclean. But if anyone regards something as unclean, for that person, it is unclean. So, if you believe strongly that it is a sin for a Christian to consume alcohol, then you ought not consume alcohol because for you it would be sin. And if you were to go and consume alcohol, you would be sinning. 
This is where it gets a bit tricky, right? This is where we need to know each other well enough that we might be able to navigate these things and not just boil things down into black and white dichotomies. Let me read this out to you because I really want to, to nail this down well, okay? So here's, here's, here's my summary of this argument. If I believe that to drink alcohol is a sin and then I go ahead and drink alcohol, I have sinned. I have not sinned because drinking alcohol is a sin, but because it is a sin to do something that you believe is evil. That is, if I think something is evil and then I do it, I have acted against my conscience, and to act against one's conscience is to commit sin. Now, here's where it gets a little bit more complex, all right? I also need to recognize and remember that my conscience can be misshaped and misinformed. It's not omniscient. It's not God's word, infallible. My conscience can be misshaped and misinformed. So then the onus is on me to continually reform my conscience, not by my culture, but by the word of God. So all of us in this church, any, any church that's multicultural, you will have multi-perspectival views on these debatable things. Now, it might be that you have this view because you grew up in this country or because you grew up in this generation. And so you need to know that. Be self-aware and then crit- criticise your, um, your traditions, your customs, by the word of God, not by daddy told me so, okay? So we, we, need, we need to take that responsibility, not by my culture, but by the word of God. And so all of us, irrespective of where we land on these issues, should be able to land on them with sincerity. We should have educated consciences. If you say to me, uh, I don't believe in eating cake, then I want you to be able to say, here's why, and give me some good reasons. Okay? That's why Paul says, verse 5, verse 5 he says, One person, giving another example of when it comes to days and festivals and sacred things, one person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. When it comes to these issues, that's what I want to know. Are you fully convinced? Do you have a good good grounding for the things that you are espousing? That's what we should all be aiming for. That's the path of discipleship. And I'm saying the judge of your conscience is the Word of God. And as we figure that out, we do it with patience and gentleness, accepting those who have different opinions. Okay, so you're in this situation, right? Maybe you're in a small group, maybe it's in your family, extended family, um, whatever. You've got a situation where someone is espousing a view on a... Uh, on one of these secondary matters, espousing a view that is um, that doesn't have grounding in the Bible, and and they're espousing this view, and you're trying to figure out: is this is this a time where I patiently just let it go and whatever, or is this a time where I need to say, "Have you thought about this? Can I show you somewhere in the Bible that says this?" Right? You need, you need to make the decision. I think one of the first questions you need to ask is, what now, how much potential for damage does this view have? 
How much damage could this view do to the body of Christ? How much damage could this do to my family or my marriage or whatever? You need to do a little risk assessment, right? If this got out of hand, if the whole church started espousing this view that I don't find in the Scriptures, how much damage would be done? I think there's a broad spectrum when it comes to that kind of thing. And probably if you're like me and you're more sort of... um, you're leaning more towards the we do it because God said we should do it and less patient and gentle, right, that kind of person, you, sh- you should make your disposition one of um, acceptance and gentleness first. Be accepting, be gentle, and then apply the, your critical mind and your theology and your, your Bible. But I'll give you a couple examples with different outcomes or different best practices, right? So, Towards the end of her life, my mum's, uh, sorry, my dad's mum, my, my nan, came to live with us at our house. And she was definitely one of those Christians who grew up believing that to be a Christian is to be a teetotaler. I mean, she just would not have ever even gone near a bottle of anything. And it was a great cause of distress to her to see all of us boys drinking. And, I mean, to ha- my setup in the garage, like, she just didn't even want to go near the garage, right? It was like the devil's workshop. And, um, and I can remember, to my shame, to this day, I remember quite viscerally, sitting at the table with her. No one was arguing, no one was yelling, but I was having a really energetic debate with her about why she believed that all Christians should not drink anything. And I could see that it was tradition, It was just, she grew up in a Methodist tradition, and it wasn't just not drinking, it was not doing a whole lot of things, as well as doing a whole lot of things. Another thing, one of these peripheral issues, is having a quiet time every morning. Really recommend it. Do it myself. It's not the law, right? Um, So, I'm getting distracted. Anyway, so I can see, it's not like she doesn't have a, she didn't have a verse. Um, And so I was just, just crushing her. I was winning. And, and I didn't realise at the time, and I didn't realise till after she was dead, that what I was doing was really unloving towards her. I was being a bully. I, I just wanted to win. She was a hundred years old. Literally, she was a hundred years old, and I'm trying to win her over to my drinking Christian thing. And, and what comes to mind is I, just, I, I imagine Jesus looking over that situation, and here's what he looks like. Jesus face palm. Like you're you you're being an idiot. I love you, but you're being an idiot. He says, you know, if you're if your eating causes distress, then you're not acting out of love anymore, right? If your arguing is causing distress, it's it's just undermining someone's faith, then stop it. Choose the path of love. So there's one, one way where I should have withdrawn instead of going into battle. That isn't always the way, though. So the other example that came to mind was Paul in um, his treatment of circumcision. So again, first century, lots of Jews becoming Christians, and for a lot of those Jews, they want to continue the practice of circumcision. It's, a, it's an important tradition for them. It's what they've always done, right? It's, it's, it's for them, it marks them out as God's people. And, and Paul knows that in the New Covenant, it's not about outward circumcision, it's about circumcision of the heart, right? There's, there's no more outward signs needed. 
It's, it's about what's inside that counts. And so he knows that, and yet he makes it his practice that if people want circumcision done, he's happy for it to be done. He's like, yeah, it's important for your tradition, for your family. Let's, yeah, who cares? Let's just do it. Just, let's just let's accept the weaker brother in this case. Until, until a group of guys want to make it about salvation. I think it's Acts 15, where these, this group called the Judaizers, they come in and they say to all the believers, they say, from now on, if you want to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. Jesus and circumcision, that's the new deal. And Paul's like, not on my watch, right? And him and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem and they argue vociferously and win the day. And if they hadn't, then we might not have the gospel as we have it now right? He was like, there is no way I'm going to let you make it Jesus plus anything. We're saved by faith. We're saved by grace, apart from these outward symbols and signs. And so that, isn't that interesting? Because if you read through Acts or even through some of his letters, it's like, Paul used to be okay with this, and now he's really against it. And that's why, because it went from being a secondary issue to someone trying to make it a gospel issue. So that's when he steps up and says, no. So we need to be aware of that as well. Because there are people who will come into our church and try and make it Jesus plus something. It has happened from day one until today. It has happened in the last few years that I've been in this church. We've had people who have come in and and normally, quite discreetly, tried to make it Jesus plus something. And at that point, we have to say, no. No. So a couple of different examples there, one where I should have withdrawn and another where Paul gives us the example of stepping up and putting his, his foot down. That's why he says in verse 16 to 17, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's like, don't make these peripheral things gospel things. The kingdom of God's not about what you eat and what you drink. It's about righteousness. It's about joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. These things are huge, monumental, eternity-deciding things. And you're talking about meat. Like, get over that. Don't let those things become the main thing. And so you have this situation where, yes, we have to be mindful of the weaker brother. We have to be mindful of people who, for whom their conscience is, is um, directed in a certain way and for whom things are more important than they otherwise might be. But we can't let those things become gospel things. We can't let anyone who holds that view, maybe even very vociferously, we can't let them paste onto the gospel these other issues. Are you with me? This is the way that um, R.C. Sproul, a, a commentator on, on Romans, this is the way he puts it. Though the stronger brother is to bend over backwards not to offend or hurt the weaker brother, the stronger brother is not to allow the weaker brother to exercise moral tyranny over the church. They are not to take their scruple, right, their issue, and make it a binding law upon the whole community. That's really important. 
As soon as that happens, you have division. You have a minimization of the gospel. The gospel plus anything equals nothing. So, I, I'm like, just honestly, we, we have had people trying to do this over the years, and it's had to be confronted. That's one of the reasons you, you pay us to be pastors, right? To be shepherds, to be able to see these things and, and deal with them before they become, before they become issues. We're going to get to Romans 16 in a couple of weeks. We only got a couple of weeks of Romans left. Romans 16 is the last chapter, and, and Paul, as a sort of uh, a parting instruction, gives a really, really sober warning to his church and to ours. This is Romans 16:17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. He knows that it only takes a little half-truth, a little addition to the gospel to completely lead us all astray. Be on your guard, keep watch, have nothing to do with them. So here's, here's my summary, all right? I'm out of time, all right? Number one, Christians of Caroline Springs, don't judge those whose faith is weaker those who are in our community whose faith is not yet matured, don't judge them, but accept them, just as God has accepted each one of us. Number two, don't force a weaker brother or sister to act against their conscience. If you do that, you are forcing them to sin, and that might just destroy the faith that God is himself building in them. And number three, likewise, don't let the weaker Christian make and take their peripheral issue and make it a gospel issue. Don't let that happen. Rather, verse 19 and 20, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Construction and destruction, right? Edification. So he's saying, take every, every bit of effort you have, every bit of energy, anything that you would otherwise waste on arguing about vegetarianism and, and, and eating meat, like all of those silly things that we could disagree on, take the energy you would have spent on that and make every effort to invest in mutual edification. Right? Edification is building. Edifice, building, right? Building up. Construction. He wants us to be building each other up with everything we have and not to allow any of that energy to go towards destruction, destroying that thing that Christ has died for, destroying that thing that God himself is building up. That's, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of, you know? I want to be a part of a church where people are pouring everything into making me more like Jesus. If you resonate at all with this mission that we have, then I hope you feel the same way. Like, you want to be part of a church where everyone, they're so busy trying to make all of life all about Jesus that they can't be bothered with whether you're wearing a baseball cap at church or not. Who cares? I remember as a 14-year-old being told off for wearing my baseball cap to church. I was like, you're lucky I'm here. 
stupid. So let's make the main thing the main thing. Let's keep the gospel on repeat. Let's keep it at the center of all that we do so that we avoid these, these errors that Paul has warned us against this week. Let's, let's pray together, shall we? Father, we know that we're prone to make peripheral things the main thing. We know that we're prone to add stuff to the gospel. That's not just the, the bad guys, that's us. We make traditions into gospel issues and how oh, we just do this without even thinking. So please help us to see where we're doing that and help us to correct ourselves by the Word of God. I pray that we would be a church that really does this together, iron sharpening iron, people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. We pray it in His good name. Amen.